the Gospel of Matthew and turn someplace else. Uh, my wife and I were talking about scriptures and, and stories in the in the scriptures that spoke to situations like what we're facing now. And uh, my wife mentioned the book of Esther. And as I began to study that passage, I thought this would be perfect for us to, to look at today. So if you'd join me in your Bibles in the book of Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. And uh, the title of our talk today is Sovereign Through the Chaos. Our God is sovereign even in the midst of chaos. Uh, I saw on Twitter this week that a dad uh, tweeted that the quarantine was finally setting in for his four-year-old son. That day he said, Dad, I know where we're going after nap. Nowhere. And no one is coming over. <laughs> Some of us can resonate with that four-year-old's despair and that... that uh, that discouragement that has settled into his heart. Uh, I, I realize for some who are probably listening today, this this uh, stay-at-home order and this virus—it's it's no big deal. It's not maybe disrupting your life in a in in vastly significant ways. But for most of us, uh, we're feeling at least some measure of fear, of uncertainty. Maybe for some of us, it's it's high-end anxiety. We're feeling frantic. We're feeling. Uh, like everything's in chaos. Well, as we look at the book of Esther this morning, in particular chapter 4, I hope that you're encouraged. And now I have to give you a little warning that uh, the first little bit here is we, as we see some parallels between Esther's situation and our situation, it might be a little bit discouraging as we, as we see, wow, she was walking through some really difficult things. But I, I hope, rather than discouraging, you'll see it as a blessing because you're going to realize that there have been others who've gone before us who've walked in times of fear and uncertainty and doubt and worry and that God has, has strengthened them in the midst of those struggles. I, I promise that as if you stick with us here, you're going to walk away encouraged by God's word. The story of Esther finds us at a time in Jewish history when they're being ruled by the Persians. It was a vast empire extended from the northwest of India across the Near East and into northern Africa, including Egypt and, and Libya and modern-day Sudan. We know that Judah had been taken captive by Babylon around 605 B.C. But by this point in history, they had been allowed to return home. The temple had even been rebuilt. However, some Jews were still living as exiles in Persia, and Esther was one of them. She was being raised by her older cousin, Mordecai, and she was chosen to be queen of the empire in around 480 BC. And you can read about that in the first couple chapters of Esther. So far, things don't sound so bad. I mean, she's queen. Uh, the, the, there's, there's been some measure of freedoms returned to the Jewish people. But every good story needs to have a bad guy. And uh, that bad guy in this story is a man by the name of Haman. He's a Persian official, and he sought to eradicate the Jewish minority. And I'd like for you to follow along as we read Esther chapter 4 this morning. Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, I need to stop right there because if you haven't read chapter 3, you don't know what all had been done. That's Haman had, had sort of sweet-talked the king, Artax, uh, Ahasuerus, or Xerxes. He's given several names in, in Scripture and in history. But uh, he had sweet, kind of sweet-talked the king 
into allowing him to issue an edict that would essentially allow him to exterminate the Jewish people in the land. Pretty serious, serious thing. And so you can understand that Mordecai, a Jew himself, was devastated. And so it goes on to say in verse 1, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. And he went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuch, eunuchs, who'd been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go with Mordecai to learn what, was, what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the, into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come to the king in these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said, and then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that the king's, in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews, will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had told him. We see some things about this story that, that bring sort of a parallel to us today. First of all, in Esther chapter 4, it was a time of dire national emergency. Actually, chapter 3 kind of unfolds that story of what, what Haman's plot was. In fact, chapter 3, verse 6 says, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now, there's no, no uh, 
question about what his plan was. He hated the Jewish people and he wanted to see them wiped out. Now, we may not be experiencing a national emergency like that. I mean, there's, as far as I know, even in the worst case projections for a virus, no one's saying that any one people group is going to be wiped totally off the face of the earth. But we understand that there's been a, a state of emergency declared. We understand that uh, this is a pandemic that is serious. I know there's various opinions about how serious, but regardless, it's still serious. And, and the, the Jewish people faced a, a situation that was uh, all hands on deck, all alerts going out, and it was a grave situation. It was also a time of fear and failure and loneliness. You know, the emotions that we feel during this time uh, are not new to the human race. What we saw there at the beginning verses in chapter 4 that, that Mordecai, when he heard about this decree, he went through the, the process of mourning, of expressing outwardly that inner grief by putting on sackcloth and ashes. It said he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. This was not just something that he did in the, in the private of his own home. He was, he was outside, um, and, and he, had, he had made it very, very clear that he was, he was burdened down to his very soul at this awful travesty that was about to take place. You know, it wasn't just Mordecai that respond, responded with, um, with such uh, an intense uh, mourning. Um, it, it says that in every province, wherever the command, this is verse, verse 3, wherever the command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews. Furthermore, it was Esther who was touched by this. Verse 4 tells us that when Esther's young women and eunuchs came and told her, so they brought her the news of the edict, it says the queen was deeply distressed. That Hebrew word is translated in other Bible translations as uh, she was overcome with fear. Uh, the NASB says that she writhed in great anguish. You know, some of us have struggled with fear ourselves during this time. We worry, we, we're concerned, we're burdened because we don't have lots of answers. We ask questions like, how long will this stay-at-home order last? What happens if I get sick? What happens if I get the virus? Or maybe even more seriously, what if an elderly loved one gets sick? What's my job situation going to look like? If I lose my job, I'm going to pay my bills. What are my kids going to do stuck inside all the time? What am, what am I going to do? Am I going to lose my mind? Uh, how does this impact my kids' education? Uh, where on earth am I going to get toilet paper, for goodness sakes? And very seriously, what happens if I run out of Twinkies? What happens if the ice cream disappears? In all seriousness, though, we recognize that um, fear is a very powerful thing. And, and, and in this situation, fear gripped Esther's heart. She was in deep distress. She didn't know what to do. She was anxious and she was worried. And I have to also think that Esther, during this time, struggled with loneliness. You know, as far as we know, she was the only Jewish person in the, in the court. Now, maybe some of her attendants and, and some of the ladies that she mentions who are with her, maybe they were friends from growing up, but She's very isolated. Even communicating with her cousin Mordecai, the one who had raised her, 
as sort of an adoptive father. Uh, she has to do it through a messenger. Um, she even says in verse 11 that she hasn't been with the king in 30 days. This is the queen here. So I have to think that, that Esther was experiencing some loneliness in the midst of this time. So when you couple in this fear and uncertainty with, with not having those who are closest to you be able to be physically present, this is a, this is a mixture of, of, of concern. You know, a lot of us are feeling that loneliness right now. I mean, not being able to worship together. Uh, I've seen pictures on the internet of grandparents standing outside of windows trying to talk to their grandchildren and, and touch base. This is a time when we recognize how, how, how much God has created us to be people who, who are interacting with one another, that to have human contact, to have, have that important love. That it, can't be, it can't be fully replaced with a computer screen, with FaceTime and Zoom and, and, uh, and social media. We need one another. We, we need each other's presence. And I, I think Esther would have understood how many of us feel with loneliness. But I also want to add one other thing that I, I think that Esther would have been able to connect with us, uh, would have been able to connect with us on, is that as much as we extol Esther's virtue, and she was a virtuous woman, a courageous woman, as we'll see, um, Esther also failed in some pretty big ways. We don't often think about that, but in contrast to Daniel and his friends who lived in Babylon some years before, in fact, Esther was probably born around 20 years or so after Daniel passed away, would never have met him, would have been a, a, different, uh, a different kingdom who would have been in control at that time. And by the time Daniel passed, Persia came and took over. But um, Daniel and his friends stood resolute they didn't budge on any of the, 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 the whether it was dietary laws. And they, they took a clear stance. Esther didn't so much. Uh, not only um, did she marry a pagan, but she, she was sleeping with him before she married him. Uh, there are a lot of indications in the text that she succumbed to the worldliness of the culture and much of the, the customs that that would have run contrary to the laws of God. But as we're gonna see, uh, that wasn't the final chapter for Esther. You and I can probably relate. You know, our, uh, our house arrest um, has probably given us uh, ample opportunity to, <laughs> to sin against one another, whether it's losing our temper with our kids or our spouse. Maybe it's uh, squandering too much time on, on social media. Maybe it's uh, giving in to pornography. Maybe it's uh, other ways of wasting time and laziness, or uh, maybe it's uh, hoarding a little bit too much toilet paper. Uh, the truth is that you and I are in good company when it comes to Esther, or, or bad company. The company of sinners who desperately need God and His forgiving and redeeming grace. Uh, your disobedience, my disobedience, whether it's under quarantine or whether it's just our average everyday sin, it's not the last chapter. It wasn't for Esther and it's not for us. There's a lot of ways that we can relate to Esther during our time of exile here. Thirdly, I want to say, though, that it was also a time of uncertainty and powerlessness. In, in these verses, we're told that there was some chaos. I mean, at the end of chapter 3, verse 15, it says the whole city of Susa was thrown into confusion. It was, it was chaos. It was madness. And, 
And there was no way that they sensed that they had the power to do anything to fix their situation. And frankly, in and of their own strength, they didn't. And Esther explained that as she went back and forth with her, her, uh, her cousin Mordecai. She says, listen, I can't go before the king. Don't you realize? I mean, everybody knows this law, Mordecai, that, that if, if you just go into the king's court unannounced, even me as the queen, you can be put to death if he doesn't raise his scepter for you. This is serious. I, I, don't, I don't have the ability to fix this situation. Probably many of us have said those same words, either to ourselves, to our spouses, to our kids. We wish that we had the ability to, to remedy, to fix, to snap our fingers and make a virus go away and to lift bans for gatherings. The truth is that we don't have that power. There is one who does. And Esther's going to see him act. And we can trust him that he can act in our midst. That's the situation that Esther faced. It was dire. It was serious. It was grave. But there was a controlling truth, a sustaining truth, that I think turns the story. We kind of, we kind of see that the emotional climactic moment here begin to build as Esther realizes and comes to grips with something about God. And that sustaining truth is the sovereignty of God. You see, in his reply to Esther, Mordecai says in chapter 4, verse 14, Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? We've heard that verse quoted. There's songs that have been sung about it. It's a, it's a quote that's even worked its way into popular usage. For such a time as this. Mordecai recognized that God was at work in the situation and that he had placed Esther in her position as queen for just such this moment. When we try to think about what it means that God is sovereign, we can say something as simple as God is in control. And, and that's true. But there's much more to it than that. It's, it's a much deeper theological truth than just believing that God's got you. It's the truth of Scripture that communicates God's rule over absolutely everything. There is nothing, nothing that takes place in this universe without God giving His okay. I realize that there can be some struggles thinking about life like that. But it's, it's what the scripture teaches. And ultimately, it's incredibly comforting to know that, that this virus is under God's sovereign, watchful eye. And for whatever reason, he has allowed it here on this earth. We can speculate about those reasons, but unless you've heard something directly from God, we we. That's all it is, is speculation. But these, the scriptures that, that point us to a God who is in complete control bring assurance that, that, that the, the train has not been derailed, that things are not just going crazy out there, that we have a God who is absolutely 
perfectly and comfortably still on the throne. Some of these scriptures include verses like Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, where God says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Isn't it great to know that when God wants something done, when God's at work, there's nothing that can stop him. He's not not thwarted by our sinful decisions. He's not thwarted even by our indecisiveness and our fear. God can accomplish what God wants to accomplish, and he will. Daniel 4.35 says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he, God, does according to his will among the host of heaven and among all the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? In Job, we read that God is unchangeable. Who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me. That's the God that we serve. The psalmist writes in Psalm 115.3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. This is the God that we can trust in, that we can rely upon, that we can be assured in, that he is at work even when we're not really sure what's happening. You've probably heard this before, but in the entire book of Esther, God's name is not mentioned even once. Do you know that? I don't believe it was a mistake. I don't believe the author of Esther got done, made copies, put them in the mail, was rereading it later on one night and say, oh, oh no, I forgot to talk about God. I told this whole story. I didn't even mention God once. I actually don't think it was a mistake. I, I think the author of Esther was using a literary device. He was intentionally leaving the name of God out. Why? I think he was reminding us that there are times, just like the name of God is absent from this book, there are times when it can often seem like God is absent from our life. We feel like he's nowhere to be found. A virus runs rampant, or a cancer ravages a body, a a job is lost. And we think, where are you, God? And that's probably how Esther and Mordecai and their fellow Jewish people felt. But this author wants us to see that God is at work behind the scenes, even when when he's not blatantly, obviously, right in front of our face, declaring himself there. We don't see the whirlwind in the, the pillar of fire. We don't hear the booming voice from heaven. Yet God is at work. You think about all the coincidences quote-unquote coincidences that had to take place for Esther to even end up where she was. It was God's sovereign hand that, that one night, and you read about this in chapter 1, the, the king got drunk and had a big party and, and wanted his, his wife Vashti to come dance before everyone, and she refused. And so he gave her the boot and then decided to hold a beauty pageant to, among the virgins of the land to, to pick a replacement queen. So just by coincidence that a Jewish woman, Esther, got picked out of dozens, maybe hundreds of women 
No, this was God's sovereign outworking of his plan to save his people. We can look to the story of Esther and be reminded that God's at work, God's in control, even when we can't see it. Charles Spurgeon tells a story about uh, Martin Luther. I don't know whether it was a true story or not, but it's been circulated quite a bit. He was typically a man of cheerful disposition, but at times he would sink into discouragement and despondency. And uh, during one particular particularly long time of discouragement, his friend said, hey, why don't you get out? Just go get a change of scenery, spend some time out in the countryside, travel a little bit, get some fresh air, and hopefully that'll help you feel better. Well, it didn't. He came home, and he was not feeling uh, any more cheerful, any more joyful and uplifted. And he came home, and he found his wife, uh, Katie, uh, Catherine Von Bora, and their children all dressed in black. And he said, oh, oh no, who died? And this was her reply. Why, should she, why, said she, doctor, have you not heard that God is dead? My husband, Martin Luther, would never be in such a state of mind if he had a living God to trust to. <laughs> With that, Martin Luther let out a laugh and realized that he had been rebuked by his wife, that he had taken his eyes off God and allowed his circumstances to overwhelm him. You know, we too during this time, listen, we can feel emotions, we can feel discouragement, we can feel anxiety, but when those things begin to, to take over, it means we're taking our eyes off of God. This is an important time to remember the, the sustaining truth of the sovereignty of God. Let me show you how in these verses here, uh, how the situation turned around as Esther trusted in a sovereign God. It went from discouragement and fear and despondency, and it became several things. First of all, it became a time of self. It became a time of self-sacrifice, humility, prayer, and fasting. Um, in verses four, fifteen and sixteen of chapter four, it says Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, "Go gather all the Jews uh, to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days." This was um, a shift in Esther. So you, before you could kind of see her toying with the idea as she made her excuses, I can't go before the king. That, like, she's, it almost seems like maybe she's thinking like, you know what, if I don't do anything, I mean, nobody knows I'm a Jew. I'm going to weather this. I'm going to get through okay. But she began to realize that that wasn't what God wanted for her. And so she, she decided as she chose to step forward, that she was going to be willing to take this sacrificial move. Um, and so she says, if I perish, I perish. She recognized that she had a unique opportunity to save her people through her actions. Now, ultimately, it was God who was going to save. It was God who was going to have to work. But she could make some decisions. She could make some steps that, that, could, that could help put them on that path. The whole balance of God's sovereignty and human responsibility that we talked about several weeks ago. You see, during this time of our own exile, we have lots of opportunities to put each other first, to think about others above ourselves. Have you been hoarding that toilet paper? It's time to share a little bit. Have you, have you made sure that you're taking time to, 
to look for ways that you can reach out and show the love of Christ? Are you uh, trying to find ways to reassure your kids and build them up? And, and uh, are, are you taking time to, to set aside maybe programs that you want to watch so that you can enjoy time with your family? Are you using the opportunity to send encouraging texts or, or notes to people in the mail? Um, are you keeping your ears and eyes open on social media for needs that, that you might come across? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ reminds us that the way of humble service is the way to true fulfillment and contentment. This time of, of quarantine, of, of being stuck in our homes, while we're limited in some ways to what we can do, is a great opportunity to look to see how you can bless others. That's what Esther did. Notice also that this, this was a time of prayer and fasting. Uh, th- this, this crisis drove Esther and the Jewish people to their knees. We know that during their time of exile, many people were not walking faithfully with God. Esther may have been one of them. And yet, this trial showed them that they absolutely needed him. Now, I know the text doesn't specifically mention prayer. It talks about fasting. And again, I think that was another literary device uh, and the author intentionally left out that word. But we know that in the Old Testament, prayer and fasting always went together. If they're doing one, they're doing the other. Or if they're doing the fasting anyways, they're praying. You know, it's not a coincidence that we as a church spent time last year talking about what it means to be a praying church. It's not a coincidence that our, the whole focus of our denomination's national conference last summer was prayer. I believe that God is giving us an opportunity to put in practice some of the things that we talked about. He's giving us opportunity to grow as individuals as we, as we have that quiet time in the morning as we pray for sick loved ones, as we pray for this virus to pass, as we pray for opportunities to reach out during this time, uh, God is calling us to go deeper in prayer, but not only as individuals, but as a church, that we might emerge from this trial, from this crisis, as a church that is even more deeply committed to prayer. This was also a time, and became a time, of radical trust of absolute dependence upon God. You know, when, when you're out of options, when, when you don't have a way to fix it, you, you've got to cast yourself totally upon God. And that's what Mordecai and Esther were doing. They recognized that, that they needed to take a, a serious step of faith in their trust. Um, Mordecai, I think, I think he was a pretty mature guy, a pretty, pretty solid, theologically, theologically solid man. He says in verse 14, he says, If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Do you hear what he's saying? He says, listen, um, you can choose not to step up, and the consequences will be dire. And and Mordecai actually believed that Esther would, would perish. She would not be able to hide and survive this. But notice his affirmation, his faith in God. He says, listen, if, if you don't step up now, God's going to deliver us some other way. I think he believed the promises of God, that God was going to, to send a deliverer, that God was going to sustain his people and keep his people. I think Mordecai was solidly assured of that. And he, he radically believed that God was at work. But you know what? Uh, this was a learning process for Esther. And as it began to sink in here at the end of chapter 4, and, and she asked um, 
Mordecai and the, her fellow Jews to pray and fast. And she said she and, and her other attendants would do the same. She says, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Do you realize what radical trust and faith in God that took? There is no promise here that for Esther, she was going to live through this. She had no ray of moonlight coming through while she slept and an angel coming to her saying, it's okay, go talk to the king. It's all going to work out just fine. She had no, no other assurances that this was going to go uh, according to plan. And yet, she stood out, stepped forward in radical trust in God. Whether it's the stress of a stay-at-home order, a nasty virus, a broken marriage, the ravages of cancer, the loss of a job, or, or other burdens that seemingly are too impossible to bear, we can only get through them with deep dependence and trust in God. It's not just the big things. It's literally everything we need to trust him for. The small things, the mundane, everyday stuff. We just easily forget that until the big things knock us off our feet, like viruses and quarantines. Esther was learning to trust God. And you know, finally, I want to point out that it became a time for courageous action. Esther's trust was not a... Uh, some sort of an empty promise, like, yeah, I believe in God, sure. But it was, a, it was a trust that prompted her to action, and very courageous action, as we mentioned. There was no promise of a happy ending here. Yet she chose to step forward and plead for her people. You can read the story in chapter 5 of what happened and, and how God honored her faith, how God used her to sovereignly save his people. What about you? What sort of courageous action is God calling you to in these days? How is he calling you to step forward in a, in a bold faith? Maybe it's to start calling people, uh, maybe people you don't know all that well, and, and praying with and for them on the phone or via FaceTime. Maybe it's taking time to, even though you might feel inadequate as a dad or a mom, to spend extra time teaching your kids the Word of God. Uh, maybe it's leading in your home that you're not going to let fear dominate the culture of your house, but you're going to let faith and trust and, and, and hope and joy guide the way. What is God calling you to courageously do? Maybe it's find a way to reach out to that neighbor, even though you still have to keep a, a six-foot distance. Maybe you see them out doing some yard work and, and you go and begin to talk to them. These times of vulnerability are great opportunities to open the door for conversations about the big things in life, about God and what really matters. You know, as we think about the book of Esther, and we've only just scratched the surface, Elise Fitzpatrick says that the book of Esther is, is not simply a morality tale about a few faithful Jewish people who stand up for God in the midst of a pagan land. More fundamentally and splendidly, it's the story of God's desire to glorify himself and to make his son beautiful in the lives of alienated and weak exiles by showing his covenant faithfulness. 
You know, we, we in these days have sort of been alienated and exiled. And, and the gospel reminds us that when we're weak, it is God who is strong. The gospel reminds us that God is the one who does the work. God is the one who fights for us. The story of Esther points us back to the truth that we, we come to circumstances in life that seem hopeless from time to time. From the perspective of the Jewish people, there was ultimately nothing they could do to save themselves from Haman's wicked plot. They had no power, no, no ability to overthrow the government. They needed another to deliver them. They needed someone who would intercede on their behalf before the king. That's the gospel, isn't it? You and me, we're helpless to save ourselves. We needed another who could do it for us. His name was Jesus. He stepped in and went to the cross and in his death and resurrection became our substitute. May the story of Esther today remind you that you can trust God during these times. And may the story of Esther point you to the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, knowing that it is him who fights for us and that it is him and him alone who saves. Won't you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, let us learn to trust you in the midst of uncertain and fearful times. May we hold fast to you. God, let us deeply believe the doctrine of your sovereignty. May we rest in you, a God who is in complete control, a God who is not who's not fallen from your throne, a God who is not asleep at the wheel, but you are a God who is in control here in the midst of these uncertain times. Heavenly Father, as we hear the story of Esther, may we be reminded to trust you. May we be reminded that when we blow it, whether it's in our minds or verbally with our tongues or in some other way, that there's forgiveness. It's not the last chapter. God, would you remind us that when fear begins to creep up, you're a God who has called us to cast our anxieties and our fears upon you. We ask that you would replace that with peace. Lord, during this time of exile, help us to love well. May our minds continuously go back to the gospel over and over and again. We can't, but you can. We are weak and helpless, but you are powerful to save. You are powerful to deliver. Oh God, we ask that you would deliver us. Deliver us from the, uh, this illness and virus that's passing around through our world so that we might be able to go forth as your church, not hindered in any way, shape, or form. We love you, God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We love you. We can't wait to see you again soon.